Thank you, Elizabeth. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We'll be picking up tonight where we left off previously, and we're looking at Paul's final instructions to the Philippian church at the end of his letter. This will be the last night that we're looking at the first nine verses of chapter 4, which concludes a section where Paul instructs the Philippians about specific concerns he wanted to address, and then also summarizes the work that he's labored in in the letter so far. And so I will read verses 1 through 9 to set the context for us, and then we will pick up our study in verses 8 and 9. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your holy word and its instruction for us. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would bring each of us to the end of ourselves, that we would be renewed, be rebuilt, and be relying on Christ our Lord. For all that he is, he is our Lord, and we worship him. Father, let us seek what is right before you by the power of your spirit and Christ our Lord. Amen. So, as I said, we're picking up where we left off last week. And we looked previously at these instructions that Paul left. As I mentioned before, this first section dealt with a specific division in the body that Paul wanted to address. The two women, Euodia and Syntyche, were having some sort of division. They got to Paul, and he felt compelled to address it in his letter, to correct them, to encourage them, exhort them to unity. In fact, the word that we said he uses, he says, I entreat you which is a sweet word that draws them to unity. Additionally, he called on the whole body of believers to be participants in this work of unity, this ministry of reconciliation. Everyone in the church was called to be a part of bringing unity to the body. What follows this first deeply practical point was what I said was a summary of the entire letter. In verses 4 through 7, Paul ties up the arguments from the first part of his letter. He exhorted them to joy by means of reasonableness and prayer. They were to be free of anxiety, trusting that the Lord would provide both for their needs and for his. 
As he said in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he said, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He demonstrated for the Philippians his own lack of anxiety. Remember what trouble Paul was in. He was imprisoned in Rome. He was being persecuted by a mighty government that stretched as far as the land did. There was no escape for him from the hand of Rome. And they were seeking perhaps even his life, he knew. And yet he was content. And not just content, but rejoicing because the gospel had gone forth to places they could not have expected because of his imprisonment, even to the household of Caesar. The gospel was being heard by people who might never had heard because of the affliction that Paul was enduring. So he was not only content, but rejoicing in his trial. And so he was teaching them to not be anxious in their trial because God is working in the midst of it. And so we saw that he summarized the first part of his letter. Well, in our text tonight in verses 8 and 9, Paul completes the arc of the second part of his letter. Remember in chapter 2, verse 12 and following, Paul urges them on to their Christian duty. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He calls them to obedience, but it is an obedience that is enabled by God working in them. It is God who works in them, he says, both to will and to work. He follows this up by laying before them the example of godly men like Epaphroditus and Timothy, and he calls them to honor them. And as we looked at that word, we understood that it also meant that they are to imitate them. They are to look to the example of their godly lives and walk in the same path. And then he warns them against false teachers, the ones he calls the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. He warns them that these come into the church and they set a snare to catch believers, if possible, in a snare for death. To take away from them the hope of life in Christ. And then finally, he points them upward and onward to Christ, to that day of glorification when Christ will return and will bring us all up to him and he will make us perfect. He will remove from us all the impurities that yet remain. He will make us glorified. And so we look forward to that day and we rejoice. And so here we see Paul reinforce that call, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. As we work our way through the text, it is important for us to consider what exactly Paul is pointing towards. He says, well, whatever is... And then we get this list, and it sounds probably familiar to us. In fact, if, if you really think back in Philippians, there's a part in chapter 2 that maybe this sounds a lot like. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. There we see another list of virtues that Paul would appeal to the believers to look for. In this one, he was encouraging them to unity in the body. He called on them to identify these virtues in other believers, to see what was true about life in the body, so that they would be encouraged towards unity with one another. Because unity, he says, must be founded in something, and that something is Christ and his work in us. If we are to be unified as a body, we must be unified in what Christ has done in us. And so he calls them to see these things, the encouragement, comfort, participation in the Spirit. That list was conditional. If these things exist, this list that we have here in chapter 4 is, is not primarily conditional. Instead, it is a call to identify those things that we see around us, even in the world, that meet a certain criteria. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And to think on these things, dwell on these things. Now, many commentators have taken the position that this is essentially a virtue list, that it matches with what you see a lot in Greek philosophy, which is identifying virtues of society that a person must dwell on or consider to be a participant in a healthy society. They appeal to the similarities of these Greek philosophical do uh, documents, and perhaps they're right. Perhaps that he is appealing in some way to a structure that is familiar to the Philippians. But it certainly can't be only that. I mean, for sure, the Philippians lived in a society that was excellent in many ways. The Roman Empire spread a novel standard of civic and social order, which believers and unbelievers alike benefited from immensely. There were great benefits to being a Roman citizen, to being in the Roman Empire. It was a good and structured society in many ways. And so there is an appeal there. But it can't be only that. It would make a lot of sense for this list to only be talking about societal realities. Because the truth is, societal realities change. Societal realities are impermanent. But not so for the realities of spiritual things. And yet again, this is not only a list of spiritual realities, because if we were only appearing to spiritual realities, it would simply be enough to say, consider your God, and to walk away, leave it at that. But Paul doesn't do that. And so there is some correspondence here to those virtue lists. And so we're going to look at them and we're going to see the things which are good and right in society and in this world, but remember that they are because of God's grace poured out upon mankind. The reason there is good in the order of the world is because God has been gracious. If there is anything beneficial or commendable in this world, it is because of God's goodness. And so we must be careful to receive what is good from the world and reject that which is in error. And so we receive the claims from the world and we reject the false claims of those things that the world says are virtuous but are actually in opposition to God's word. We submit all things to God's perfect standard. Now, before we get started, I'm only going to briefly touch on some of the things in this list, and I'm not going to do justice really to any of them. 
We could go much longer. If I spent just five minutes on each virtue, we'd be 35 minutes into the sermon before we're halfway done. So I'm not going to do that to you tonight. What we are going to do is touch briefly on them, and we're going to direct ourselves to their true source. What is the true source of goodness and commendable things? What are those things worthy of praise upon which we must dwell? So, for example, as we look at what is true, if we appeal to the world's definition of true or truth, we have some confusion. It's one of those things that you would think we'd have no difficulty agreeing on. Something is true and something is false. One plus one is two, and it's always two. That's true. And yet the world has a very complicated relationship with truth. On the one hand, poets and mathematicians, philosophers, politicians, tacticians, and more throughout history have highlighted the importance of truth. Albert Einstein said, whoever is careless with the truth in small matters cannot be trusted with important matters. And Emily Dickinson wrote, truth is so rare that it is delightful to tell it. And so the world recognizes the virtue of truth in a superficial way. By God's gracious providence, there's a natural tendency within man to desire that which is truthful, to favor that which is truthful. However, the tendency is not absolute. The world is motivated to truth by, ultimately, not truth itself, but by what benefits them. The thing that motivates the world to tell the truth is if it benefits them. Philosophy appears to place a premium on absolute truth, but in reality, human action does not meet that standard. Think about your own self. How often have you been tempted to tell the so-called white lie, the lie that, that doesn't hurt anybody? In fact, maybe it's, it's helpful. How often have you been tempted to flattery, to building someone up, but with false praise in order to make them feel good, right? It's, it's, it makes them feel better. It couldn't be a bad thing, but it just gives you power over them. Or maybe you're someone who's been tempted or actually have lied to keep the peace, are you the type of person who, when sinned against, refuses to answer the question of what is the matter and instead says, everything's fine, I'm fine? Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you have felt that temptation to lie for benefit. And the world certainly recognizes that. A prominent psychologist once said, every person must choose how much truth he can stand. As if we can compromise truth in order to benefit us. Both the world and our sinful nature is given over to self-preservation. And so we will, by our sinful nature, give up the truth to gain something. To gain comfort, to gain peace, to gain security, to gain power. We will give up the truth when it benefits us. Perhaps even more dangerous than our sinful desire to abandon the truth, however, is the phenomenon of changing the truth. There's a quote that I found that has ironically been falsely attributed to some people, and, and so it's gone around the world enough that now it's definitely a Vladimir Lenin quote, even though he never said it. And the quote is this, tell a lie often enough and it becomes the truth. We see the practical effects of this all around us. Right now, the world is engaged in a full-scale assault on the truth. Think about the definition of manhood and womanhood. 
In our schools, businesses, governments, you are being compelled to agree that a man can be a woman and that a woman can be a man. That's what the world is telling you. That's what the world says is true. And in fact, if you are one of the people who disagrees and says a man can't be a woman, well, you're crazy. You're out of touch. Our young people, you're coming of age in a world that is telling you that you get to make your own truth. What will you do with that power? What room is there in a world where you get to make your own truth? What, what room is there for one who says he is the truth? While the general approval of truth in the world is good, and it is something that we should acknowledge and we should be thankful for, we should never go to the world for truth. Instead, we look to God's word. John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, the son prays to the father for the unity of the body and for its sanctification. And he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as we are doing right now in looking at each of these virtues and examining them in the light of scripture, we must always go to God's word and dwell upon the truth because God is truth. As I said before, John 14, 9, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. When the world insists that we play by their rules, that we play along with their conception of the truth, we must reject that. We must reject their desire to redefine what is true. And we must turn to that which we know is true. Genesis 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Does God's words speak to the truth about what a man and a woman are? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when the world tries to draw us along with its new falsehood, we deny what the world would have us do. And we can reject their falsehood because it contradicts the truth of God's word. God's word is true and it is eternal. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So while the world has truth that is appealing and good and a benefit to the world from God by his common grace, the world is not the arbiter of truth. God's word is truth. In the same way, we see that the world has a, a complicated relationship with honor. When we looked at chapter 2, where Paul lifts up examples to the Philippians, we talked about what honor means in the world. The world is completely upside down on the definition of honor. The world would have us give honor to men who devote themselves to playing a, support, a sport and yet neglect their families. It would have us give honor to women who cast off modesty and seek attention from the world. It would have us give honor to people we don't know, living lives we don't see. Why? Because they're in front of us all the time. They're on TV, they're on radio, and so we should give them honor, the world says. Such people are not worthy of honor. Who is worthy of honor? Well, Paul tells us that those among us, known to us, who have walked faithfully among us in the Lord, those people are worthy of honor. Young people, when you look around and you look for somebody to emulate, if you want to look and, and create a structure for your life based upon someone else's life, don't look to the newest pop star. 
and all the things that go along with that, the, the cars and the money and the houses and the relationships, don't look to those things. Instead, look within the body. Look within the church to that older saint who has faithfully lived before the Lord for 50 years or more. Who has lived obediently before the Lord, who has lived lovingly within the body of Christ. Go to that person and see how you might make your life more like theirs. Or new mamas. Don't run to social media and that hashtag mom life and figure out exactly how you need to be doing this. That's not the guide. Right here within the body are women who have labored dutifully within their families for years and raised up God-fearing children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They are an example. They are worthy of honor. So don't chase what the world says is honorable or good or desirable. Instead, look to what Scripture tells us is good or honorable or desirable. And in looking to them, these faithful saints within the body, and in looking to them, look to Christ. Because as we've already seen, they are the example that he has given to us to point us to him. They point us to the one who is greater. Now, as I said before, I warned you we were going to move quickly through the virtues, and I'm not touching on all too many of them. Each one could have gotten a sermon on its own. But what I hope is clear is this. Yes, the world can display many of these virtues, these attributes, because God is merciful, even to the unrighteous. He, he gives provision to the world, and he delays his judgment and he pours out grace in some measure to all mankind. So there is good in the world that we should look to. But if we rely on the world as the foundation and the arbiter of what is good, what is virtuous, well, that standard will fall short every time. But Christ will never fall short. Christ is absolute truth unsurpassed in honor, perfectly just, completely pure, exceedingly lovely, commendable above all. He is the excellent one. He is the one worthy of praise. He's the one who became flesh and lived the perfect life before God's law. He's the one who gave up his life on the cross, pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of of our sins, to pay the penalty that we earned in our rebellion, in our sinfulness. He's the one who gave himself for us. And he is the one who is raised from the grave and seated at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us even now if we are in him. That is the one that we should dwell on. He is the one who gave himself for us. In fact, the one who is truth died for those who were false the honorable for the dishonorable, the just for the lawless, the pure for the, un, for the defiled, the lovely for the unlovable, the commendable for the condemnable, the excellent for the wretched, the one worthy of praise for the ones worthy of judgment. Christ gave himself for us, though we were not deserving of his love. Though this list of good things in the world, if it were our only standard, we would fail. And yet Christ has not failed, and he gave himself for us. 
So do you want to know what is worthy of being dwelt upon? What is worthy of being thought about? Christ is worthy. Well, let us not only dwell upon Christ in our thoughts, but let us be spurred on in deed, not just in thought, but in deed by what Christ has done for us. That brings us to the second part of our text. Look in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul calls the Philippians and us to walk in obedience to what has been put before us. There is an obedience that must be in us if we are in Christ. But this obedience is not the root of our salvation. It is a fruit. It doesn't make us saved, but it comes from us if we are saved. And Paul appeals to the example that he has been to the Philippians. And in the same way, John, when instructing the church on assurance, he urges them to test the spirits, test the teaching of the apostles even. He says in 1 John 4, verse 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are called to walk in the way that the apostles walked before us. And we walk in that way because it points us to walk in the path of Christ. And it is right for them both to appeal to their example, the example that they have laid before the believers. Paul repeatedly directs believers to imitate more mature saints. 1 Thessalonians 3, 7 says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul here appeals to what they have learned and received and heard in him. What have they learned? Well, we could safely assume, first of all, that they had learned the same thing that he taught the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So what had Paul taught them? He had taught them the gospel. He had taught them that Jesus had laid down his life for them that he was dead in the grave and now raised. But he had also taught them how to live obediently in response to what Christ had done for them. Not only had he taught them this, but he had personally lived it out before them. So this freedom from the anxiety that he would have them exercise, that he willed for the Philippians to have, he demonstrated it for them in his letter. He demonstrated peace in his imprisonment. He rejoiced in persecution. If the Philippians wanted to know how to act, how could they go forward? Well, they had an example. They only needed to look to Paul and the life that he had lived and testified to before them. And he exhorts them to act in the same way. So we must not only see and know what is good, but we must think about these things But having been saved, we must also be obedient to them. We must practice these things. We cannot be those who only hear the word. James chapter 1, 22 through 25 says this, But 
be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If we simply dwell upon God's word and think upon it, but it doesn't change our actions in any way, it says we are, we are like somebody who looks in a mirror and then goes away from it and forgets what they look like. And that's crazy. You would be shocked if you forgot what you looked like when you walk away from a mirror. We should be equally shocked when we walk away from the study of God's word and yet our life is not changed. We should be different because God is working in us even now. And there's a promise. There's a promise that goes with this. The end of that section of James, he says, and he will be blessed in his doing. In the same way here, Paul gives us a promise. There's a blessing for those who practice obedience to walk in the works that the Lord has prepared before us. That promise is this. The God of peace will be with you. As we've seen already, John used a similar exhortation to obedience in his first epistle. In that context, we see obedience as a measure that we can look to to have assurance, to know that we are saved. It's not alone in the Christian life, but it's also not absent either. Here, Paul promises a blessing to go along with obedience. Now, this is very interestingly connected to a statement we looked at last week. In prayer, we enjoy the peace of God. In verses 6 and 7, we see that that is a result of our prayer, going before the Lord. And in obedience, we enjoy the presence of the God of peace. Now, to help us understand a little bit what this means, let's just imagine the opposite scenario. Let's say we were to walk in disobedience. What would, what would that look like? What would we know? What would we experience? Well, what do children experience when they walk in disobedience? The discipline of their parents. It's the same with us. When we walk in disobedience to God, we experience his discipline if we are truly his. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If we walk in disobedience to the Lord, what do we experience? If we are genuinely his, we experience his discipline. If we walk in disobedience, we are like the horse and the mule in Psalm 32. They refused instruction. Psalm 32, 9 says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, 
or it will not stay near to you. Because the horse and the mule lacked understanding, they did not walk in the path of their master. They wanted to go off in every other direction. And so they must have a bit and a bridle that constrains them to walk in the path that is laid before them by their master. Same thing for us. When we are under God's discipline, we are being constrained to walk in a way that is appropriate before the Lord by his discipline. So now seeing that, when we walk in obedience instead of disobedience, what do we experience? We experience the peace of God because the God of peace will be with us. Not with his hand of discipline upon us, but his hand of comfort. His hand of reassurance. His hand of joy. And we can walk in assurance of our faith and salvation because we see it lived out. We witness it in our lives. Again, it is not what saves us, but it is a testimony of that we have been saved. But as before, with our thoughts, it is important for us to remember that we will not walk in perfect obedience in this life. But there's one who did. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if we are in him, we rejoice to look upon his obedience and know that he has put his obedience upon our shoulders that it may be our obedience. We have fallen short of his righteous standard in every way. And yet in him we are counted as righteous. And we are accepted before the throne of God. And our meager works of obedience, what obedience we can give, tainted as it is by our sinful nature, it's accepted. It's accepted as a righteous work, a holy work, and a pleasing aroma. And so we can be encouraged that we are being renewed by our Creator more and more, made to walk ever after Him in obedience. So as we look at the world, we are to be thankful for what God has given us. In our society and in examples within the flock, God has given us many good things, many blessings. But while the things of this world, even the good things, will fail us, our Lord will never fail us. We who are in Christ can look to the perfect goodness and obedience of our Savior and we can rejoice. We are to put all of our hope and trust in him, dwell on his goodness, and walk in joyful obedience to him. So the exhortation, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of these good attributes that may exist in part in the world. They are fulfilled in Christ and they are perfect only in him. And so knowing that and dwelling on that and being in Christ, let us walk in obedience to the calling that we've been given. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. We thank you that you have laid before us not only an example, but you have given us a Lord. You have made us a people. And you are our God. Help us to dwell upon the goodness of Christ. Help us to walk in obedience, Lord. We may not walk in darkness, but walk in your light. We ask you these things in the name of Christ. Amen.